are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. How many of you think you're really smart? Now, hold on here. I mean genius-level smart. I didn't see any hand go up, and I shouldn't. Because the reality is most of us are smart enough to know we should not raise our hand if we're talking about being genius-level smart. But the truth is, this really is a question that we need to grapple with. Because while we may not raise our hand, many of us actually think we're genius-level smart. Some of you may be familiar with the online dating service OkCupid. It's owned by Match.com. Now, I don't know that from personal experience. I did this solely based upon research, so no worries. But in their profile matching, they're trying to match you up with your dream partner. And they ask a question that's rather odd. They don't ask, are you very smart? They ask, are you a genius? Now, here's what's crazy. Two out of five people say that they are geniuses. Now, most of us are smart enough to know that being a genius is an extraordinary accomplishment, and it really is a gift given by God. Approximately two out of a thousand people are geniuses. And we know that because a genius has 140 IQ and above, and very few individuals have that. So we have a lot of people who have an inflated view of themselves and are delusional. They think they're geniuses. This morning, we're going to look at a man in Daniel chapter 5 who thought he was a genius, and he was equally delusional. We're going to answer an important question. What happens when you think you're smarter than God? What happens when you think you're smarter than God? How does God respond to such a person? So turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. We're in the midst of a series through the book of Daniel that deals with courageous living in chaotic times. And what we are trying to to raise up is disciples of Jesus Christ who are willing to be courageous in a world that has gone mad. Now, in order to set the stage, so to speak, to reconstruct Daniel 5, we need to go back and reflect on the book because it's not always in chronological order. So in Daniel chapter 5, We're not dealing with Daniel, the exiled teenager. We're dealing with Daniel, a man in his 80s, some 70 years later. And you may recall King Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned for about 43 years. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar passed away at least 23 years ago prior to chapter 5. And then on top of that, four other kings or so have ruled and reigned after him. But that leads us up to King Belshazzar, who is most likely King Neb's grandson. Now, I'm going to call King Belshazzar King Bel, just like we called King Nebuchadnezzar King Neb. It's just so much easier for all of us. 
And we're going to see what happens when a man or a woman thinks he or she is smarter than God. So look with me at verse 1, because the setting is laid out for us. Daniel writes, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. So here we have King Bel, who has thrown quite the feast. And he's thrown a feast knowing that the Medo-Persian army is preparing to attack. He doesn't know exactly when, but he knows he's in deep, deep trouble. He throws a feast during a time when he should have declared a fast. Now, the reality is this is a serious party. I mean, can you say, let's party? Let's party. This is going to be seen as one of the parties for the ages. Now, many people get excited and think, wow, a thousand people at a party. Well, conservative estimates are it's actually two to 3,000 because verse 2 says there's wives and concubines included as well. And many scholars would say it's five to 8,000 people. That's a party. So the question that's asked by scholars and by Christians is, why did King Bell throw such a party when he didn't know what was going to happen with the armies of the Medo-Persians? There's a lot of hypotheses that are proposed, but I think the answer is actually in our text, in verses 2 through 4. So let's see King Bell's motivation. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, and by the way, many scholars would say, by tasted, he's intoxicated or drunk. But here's the reality. The text doesn't say that. It may be a likely assumption, as we're going to see as we go forward, but just understand, that's not the focal point. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, or better yet, his grandfather. Because in the Aramaic language that Daniel 5 is written in, there is no word for grandfather. This is a generic word for ancestor, or in this case, grandfather. We read that his grandfather had taken out of the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, all of the vessels, the gold and silver goblets, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. Now, you probably picked up on something. Wives and concubines is mentioned twice, once in verse 2, once in verse 3. You may not know this, but in the ancient Near East, women were not typically invited to parties and feasts unless there was immorality that was taking place. Now, I'm going to be very careful, obviously, in what I say because there are children present, but you can probably imagine what many adults have called this type of a party. This is not a good event for the family, if you know what I'm saying. Now, verse 4 says, they drank the wine and praised the gods. I would highlight that word, praised the gods, or put a little asterisk next to it. They praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here we have King Bell throwing this incredible party with thousands of people. There's drinking, there's immorality, but that's not the worst of it. That's not the sin 
that Daniel is so focused upon. He's focused on the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1 of Daniel had taken the vessels, the gold and silver goblets, and he had taken them from the Jerusalem temple and he had stored them in one of his temples, perhaps, in his palace. He hadn't touched them, he had respected them, but now his grandson decides, even though I have all these gold and silver chalices, I'm going to go and find those gold and silver goblets that belong to the Hebrew people, and I'm going to take them, and I'm going to use them for my purposes. And we're going to drink out of these vessels, and then we're going to praise all of the gods of Babylon. Now, you may be saying, Keith, so what? In the Old and New Testaments, God is very serious about not profaning his vessels, his utensils, his temple, or his tabernacle. He is opposed because he's a holy and righteous God. What King Bell is doing is unimaginable. It's unthinkable. It would be as if today we took the communion elements and instead of using them to worship the one true God, we had a satanic ritual with those elements. That's what King Bell is doing. He is saying, that puny little Hebrew God, I'm going to shake my fist in his face and we're going to worship the gods of Babylon because they are so much greater. He's basically saying, God, bring it, bring it. You want to strike me down? Our gods are greater than your God. That's what he's saying to the Hebrew people, to the Babylonian people. It is a mockery. It is sacrilegious. So the question is, how is God going to respond? Is God going to respond? What's going to happen to King Bel for what he's doing? Well, we find out in verse 5. And in verse 5, we have the beginning of one of the greatest episodes in all of the Bible. There have been films and portraits that have been built upon verses 5 and following. This is what takes place. Suddenly, immediately, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, there is a consensus this is the hand of God. This is the finger of God. Now, God does not have a body, but in Scripture, the hand and the finger of God refer to God's actions, to his power. Now, is that a theme in Scripture, specifically God's finger or fingers? Yes. The heavens came about by the very voice of God, but there is a place or two where it refers to his finger. The Ten Commandments were written by God's finger. Jesus, when he was interacting with the woman caught in adultery, he got down on his hands and knees and he wrote in the sand with his finger. Jesus later will say, I cast out demons by the finger of God. So this is a prevalent theme in Scripture. Isn't it incredible to think of the very finger of God that can accomplish the miraculous, the supernatural? It's a great word picture that that's all that God needs. He doesn't even need the entirety of who he is or all he is. So now we ask the question, how does King Bell respond? 
How would you respond? You're partying. You got your groove on. You're having a great time. The wine is flowing. Men and women are getting together. You're worshiping. You're praising the gods of your people. And all of a sudden, a disembodied hand starts writing on the wall. Talk about God crashing a party. What we can say is this. When God shows up, people sober up. My guess is, This is a world record, a historical record in sobriety. I guarantee you it happened like that. So how does King Bell respond? Verse 6, then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. Or better translated, his joints of his loins became untied or unloosed. And then lastly, his knees began knocking together. This man is scared to death. I mean, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what the language says on the plaster wall, but he is assuming it's not good. But he doesn't know what to do about it. So he is scared out of his wits. And you can see that in the text. He turns as white as a sheet, so to speak. He begins to become alarmed. On top of that, there's that funny phrase in verse 6 regarding hip joints or loins and how they become untied or unloosed. Now, what's amusing, perhaps for some of you children and adult children, is that many scholars believe he actually lost control of his bladder and his bowels. Now, I'm not certain, based upon the language of the text and my study, that that is indeed what was going on. I think our English translations most likely got it right, but it is hilarious to think about. I mean, just think about the most powerful man in the world with a wet spot under his seat. I mean, it's hilarious to me. But needless to say, he is scared to death. And then we read the expression, his knees started knocking. Now, if you want to stand up, you can. But have you ever had your knees knock? It's not as easy as you might think. I mean, I mean, that's not easy. I don't know why that expression is used of fear and horror, but his knees are knocking. Now, think about the relevance of the Bible. We've got two figures of speech, two expressions. The writing is on the wall, or the handwriting is on the wall, and the knocking of the knees. We use those in the English language all the time. We take so much of the Bible's language, and we don't even know it comes from the Bible, and we apply it in our own conversations. What we know is the king is beside himself. So the question is, in light of the king's great fear, what will he do? Well, he's going to do what his grandfather did prior to him. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Verse 9, 
Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. So even more alarmed than verse 6. His face grew even more paler, and his nobles were perplexed. So do you see what's happened? King Nebuchadnezzar pursued the wise men two times. The wise men went 0 for 2. Now his grandson consults the wise men again, and they go total of 0 for 3, and they strike out. There's a lesson for us here. Our tendency is to trust in people, but people always disappoint. I'll disappoint you. Your spouse will disappoint you. Your children and grandchildren will disappoint you. Everyone in your life will disappoint you. But God will not disappoint you. And he wants you to know he can be trusted, that you can depend upon him. But he doesn't want to be a last resort. He wants to be your first resort. Many people ask the question, well, why couldn't the wise guys, the sages, the magicians in Babylon interpret the writing on the wall? That's legitimate. Because the writing on the wall was in Aramaic, their own language. I think the straightforward interpretation is, we know from verse 25, there were four words. Four fairly simple and straightforward words. But the problem was, in Aramaic, you only had consonants for the words. Vowels were not added until 600 years after the time of Christ. Perhaps this is where the expression, I'd like to buy a vowel, comes from. Not only do you have consonants alone with no vowels, the letters were put together with no spaces. So you could choose any number of vowel options, and then you're not even sure on the actual letters and words because there's no spaces separating the words. This would confound anyone. If we were doing that type of interpretation, we would have trouble. If we took jump, jump, rock, green, and we removed all the vowels, and we had these words listed together with no spaces, you wouldn't have an idea what it meant. Trust me, I wouldn't either. But these wise men were supposed to be able to interpret everything. That was the expertise of the Babylonian wise men, and they failed. They failed royally. Now, what's beautiful about these verses is something rather unusual. That is, a warning is given to unbelievers, and it's a warning of mercy. At least we'll find that out in verse 25. We tend to think of warnings as judgment, wrath, hostility. We think of them in a negative way, but the reality is it's a severe mercy to experience God's warnings. If you're a pre-Christian and you've yet to trust in Jesus Christ, there may be a warning that God wants you to believe in him today. And he offers you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be a follower of Jesus, but you may have strayed. You may have walked away from him. Maybe you've backslid significantly. And you're hearing the voice of God this morning, and you want to say, later, I'm going to exhaust my fun and my independence. The reality is that the still small voice of God is calling out today. 
And there will come a time where God's voice is no longer still and it's no longer small. Today is the day that you and I must respond. If the Lord is speaking to you and he's saying, I want you to listen to my word. I want you to trust in me. Do it today. Do it today. Don't delay. So here we have all these wise men and they can't come up with diddly. So what does the Lord frequently do throughout the scriptures? He raises up a wise woman. We can see this again and again and again and again. So let's see what happens in verses 10 through 12. It's powerful. The queen, this is most likely the queen mother. This is likely one of King Neb's daughters who became King Bel's mother. The queen mother, who had authority and respect, she could just waltz into the palace. The queen mother entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever! Now what I love about this statement is it's supposed to build respect, supposed to honor the king, but you'll see the great irony in it as we work through this chapter. O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. I would highlight that phrase or again put an asterisk next to it or a check. A spirit of the holy gods. This can also be translated a spirit of God. This is an emphasis throughout Daniel that the only way believers are able to pull off what they are is through the Holy Spirit which indwells us and then fills us. You can follow that theme throughout Daniel. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods and in the days of your father or grandfather, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father or grandfather, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel know, let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So here we have this extraordinary queen mother who ends up entering into the scene led by God. She calls Daniel by his Hebrew name twice. Yahweh, or the Lord, is judge. And she just alludes to his Babylonian name. The indication is she knows Daniel personally and she knows Daniel's God. And she says, you don't have any solution to your ills, call on Daniel. This is powerful. This is a situation where mother knows best. Now, if you would permit me just a quick rabbit trail. Young people, listen to your mom. I know it's not Mother's Day, but listen anyway. Husbands, listen to your wife. Men, listen to your sisters in Christ at CBC. I cannot emphasize enough that women are quite discerning. They're quite wise. We have the testimony of Scripture. We have our own personal experience. I know for myself, I'm a visionary. I'm a leader. 
my wife has the gift of wisdom and discernment. She handles all the details in our lives and in our ministry. Without her, I could not function well. But it's not just limited to, to Lori. It includes all the women at CBC. Men, if we don't learn to listen to the women who are serving with us in the trenches, we will be functioning with half the horsepower at best that we could. So let's elevate women. Let's see women for who they are and all that they are. Now that pearl of wisdom is free of charge. So now that King Bell has heard from his mama, how's he going to respond? Then Daniel, verse 13, was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, who my father, or grandfather, the king brought from Judah? I'm reading this deliberately. Scorn. Disrespect. He's saying... You're a Hebrew slave. My grandfather brought you in. You're nobody. You're nothing. What he should have said is, my grandfather brought you as a young teenager and you so impressed him, you became second in command of all of Babylon. But he doesn't say that. He talks trash to him. He dishonors him. I'll demonstrate that further in verses 14 and following. Now I have heard about you. It's not, I believe in you. I know what you've done. I've heard about you. That a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you. Again, disregard, disrespect, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, this is a play off of verse 6 with difficulties or problems that are tied up that need to be loosened, either like Bell's loins, his hips, his legs, this is a play on words that's beautiful. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So do you see what King Bell does? He says, I have no other hope. I have no other wise guy. You're my last resort. So if you do what my mom and perhaps others say you can do, I'll, I'll richly reward you, but I doubt you'll be able to do so. I don't know if you noticed, but Daniel was not invited to the party at King Bell's palace. That's because often believers aren't invited to parties because they're wet blankets. No one wants to party around a believer in Jesus. Have you noticed that? And we tend to think, I'm feeling the ostracism, I'm feeling the rejection, no one respects me, no one wants to hear from me, my classmates don't, my coworkers don't, there's no one in my neighborhood who wants to include me, and we begin to feel how hopeless things seem to be. But here's something I want you to hear, perhaps even write down. 
You don't know your influence until a crisis. You and I, we do not know our influence until a crisis. You see, when everything is going well, when the world is partying, they're not going to call you. They're not going to include you. But watch when an unwed daughter gets pregnant or a son commits suicide or a marriage goes to the rocks or a family declares bankruptcy or cancer or another terminal disease enters into that family. Who are they going to call? Where are they going to turn? They're going to turn to you. You do not know your influence until a crisis hits. There will be many more crises headed our way. We saw that in 2020. We're going to see it in 2021. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Good news, just great news. I know, I know. But that's going to open up the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So make sure that you're in relationship with your neighbors, as Pastor Zach said, with your coworkers, your classmates, even your family members and friends who you may be estranged from. Get into relationship and then enter into the conversation when it's your opportunity, and they will hear the good news of Jesus. It's not a question of if, but when. Be ready to step up and step in. Speak the truth in love. So how does Daniel respond? Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. I think Daniel's ticked. And he should be because God is not happy with the mockery of his holy vessels being used for really satanic purposes. And Daniel probably didn't appreciate being dishonored and disrespected by the king. After all the years of service, 70 plus years, he's probably retired or semi-retired. He's hoping that maybe someone is going to respect him, and there's no respect. But I love Daniel's response. He says in verse 17, However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. In other words, I'm not a rent-a-prophet. You can't buy me off, and by seeking to honor me with all these rewards, change my interpretation of the writing on the wall. He says, I'm old, and I'm sold out to the Lord. You can't influence me with money. And so many believers and so many men and women of God in ministry have been influenced by money, and they've just sold their proverbial ministry out. Not Daniel. And we can learn from him. Daniel's going to give an interpretation. And what he does is he breaks down three lessons. He gives a history lesson, a theology lesson, and a reading lesson. You'll love this. Notice in verses 18 through 21, the history lesson. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. Four uses of whomever he wished in verse 19. King Neb has a degree of sovereignty, but who gave him that sovereignty? That's the question. 
In verse 20, we read, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. That term wild donkeys simply means foolishness. It's a picture of foolishness. Genesis 16, Ishmael, same title given to him that was given to King Neb. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over whomever he wishes. Did you hear that? Four uses of whomever he wishes in verse 19. But in verse 21, God is the one who gives sovereignty to whomever he wishes. God is the sovereign God. He's the most high. He's the one in control. And King Bell did not learn the history lesson from his grandfather. He chose instead to have to repeat the lesson himself. Have you ever heard the expression, you sometimes have to learn the hard way? I've heard that many times. I've unfortunately used it myself out of frustration. That's a lie. You can choose to adopt a King Bell type of life. You can party once you get out of high school or college. You can party now as an adult. You can pour your life into idols and money. You can choose any path for your life. And you can definitely learn the lesson the hard way or you can learn the lesson from others who have done the very same thing and found the unhappiness in it. Why repeat history? You bear the scars. You bear the pain. You bear the wasted time. Not only is there a history lesson, there's a theology lesson. We'll see that in verses 22 and 23. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Put a little asterisk next to, even though you knew all this. He knew everything. He may have even read or at the very least heard about King Neb's testimony that went out to all the peoples on how he became a believer. Even though you knew all of this, but you have exalted yourself. 14 times in two verses, he uses you or yourself. This is like wagging the finger. This is Daniel putting on his prophet gift and calling out King Bel. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Here, Daniel just makes it plain. What's your problem, theologically speaking? You refuse to give God glory. And that's the chief end of man because God has given you your very life breath and you have said, not interested. I don't want to learn from history. I don't want to learn from theology. And so you may have to suffer consequences. 
That leads to the reading lesson in verses 24 through 28. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Circle that word, numbered. That's the key verb. Verse 26 leads to verses 27 and 28. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Circle the word weighed. Lastly, verse 28, Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Circle the word divided. What Daniel interprets is ultimately three descending money or monetary type figures. Mina, shekel, half a mina. And then he turns them into passive verbs. Numbered, weighed, and divided. Now, he's talking about the kingdom of Babylon, but with that comes King Bel himself. He says, God has weighed Babylon and you in the balances, and you've come up wanting. And I can't tell you necessarily how many more days, weeks, months, or years you have left, but you better do business with God. It's a warning. Read the handwriting on the wall. What is going to happen? We'll see in just a moment, but first we have to see how this relates to you and me. Ultimately, God the Father has weighed humanity in the balances, and we have been found wanting. So he has ultimately sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the only one who can provide for our lack and if we believe in him, if we receive him as our savior, we can have eternal life. It's all about what Jesus has provided. Now we can see how King Bell is going to respond. Is he going to keep his word to Daniel? Now that he's heard this bad interpretation. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Do you see what happened? King Bell doesn't think his life is over. He doesn't think his kingship is over. He rewards Daniel, and he just assumes he's going to keep rolling. He's going to keep ruling and reigning as king. Is that true? Is that accurate? Verses 30 and 31. That same night. Highlight that underline that. That same night, the same day that the writing on the wall was interpreted, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. King Neb was given 12 months. 12 months to reject the word of Daniel. And then he was sent to spend time with the Angus and to turn into an animal. King Bell was given less than 24 hours. See, the reality is we don't know how much time we have left. If the warning of mercy is being extended, respond today. Here's the message of this chapter. I'll boil it down for you. Be humble or be humbled. 
Those are your two options. You can humble yourself before God and before people, or God himself will humble you. Be humble or be humbled. If you look at our country, why do we think that our country is so powerful? Yes, we're a superpower, I know that. But the only reason we're a superpower is because God has given us power and privilege. Babylon was equally powerful, perhaps even more powerful, and God took it away overnight. He removed the most powerful man in the world at that time. He could do that to us unless we repent and we humble ourselves. It's not just with the United States, it's with the church. The warnings go out throughout Scripture that if we're not willing to be humble, God himself will remove our lampstands. We will no longer cease to be light to our community. We will be blown out, snuffed, because we refuse to repent. And that can happen to you as an individual. You've been given privilege. I've been given privilege. We can become proud. We can become independent. We can think we're smarter than God. Even though we would never dare say that, and the Lord is saying, you better humble yourself right now. If you don't humble yourself, I'll humble you. Today, will you humble yourself before God? Will you say, Lord, I repent. You've been warning me, and I've ignored your warnings. I will repent on behalf of our country. I will repent on behalf of our church and the church of Jesus Christ throughout the nation. And I will repent as an individual and on behalf of my family. I will bow the knee. I will say, I want to be humble so that you don't have to humble me, Lord. Let's do that together as a church family. Father, we do just acknowledge to you that we bow the knee. We humble ourselves and we ask that you would be merciful, that you would spare our nation, that you would spare the church of Jesus Christ in America, that you would spare families and individuals from having to be humbled or humiliated. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We ask that we would have the courage and the obedience to repent and that you would make us the people you want us to be. Lord, for anyone who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior, may today be the day of salvation. Lord, you've numbered our days, but we don't know the number. May the kindness of God lead us to repentance. May the warnings of mercy be responded to. Thank you for what you're going to do, Lord. And we pray after the conviction of the Holy Spirit has set in that we will have joy. Even joy right now as we sing one last song, as we worship you, that we would have gladness of heart and that we would love you and cause others by your grace to know you intimately and passionately. For Jesus' glory and for our sake, amen.